I'm DeWitt Bingham. Welcome to the Justice for All podcast show, where we discuss all things social and criminal justice related, from the front end to the back end, and everything in between. You have a right to remain silent, because anything you say can and will be held against you. You have a right to an attorney. If you cannot afford one, one will be appointed for you. You're in the self-incrimination protection zone, where there is no cruel and unusual punishment, no illegal search and seizure. The exclusionary rule has you covered. So sit back, relax, and become sold on this week's episode. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Justice for All podcast show. I'm DeWitt Bingham, your host. Thank you for tuning in to the show that discusses all things social justice and criminal justice, where the goals are to inform you, the American citizen, of your constitutional rights, to provide educational and occupational guidance to high school and college students, and to be a voice for change. We are in our fifth week of classes at Heartland Community College, and we are in the second unit And this week, we are studying oversight and professionalism of law enforcement. So without any further ado, I introduce to some and present to others, Ms. Alexis Perez and Mr. Logan Farquhar. Welcome to the show, Logan and Alexis. I'm so happy to be here. It's a pleasure to be on your show. The title of today's show is Fleeing Felon Doctrine. So let's jump right in. Alexis and Logan, segment one is for the educational and occupational guidance of high school and college students. We accomplished this by allowing our guests to introduce themselves. So if you would tell the audience where you were born and raised, what high school you attended, your major or planned major, why you enrolled in the course and give us one career goal. Let's go ladies first. Alexis. Oh, boy. Okay. (laughs) I was born and raised in Minunga, Illinois. It's a population of about maybe 1,800 people. I went to Fieldcrest High. Graduation, I want to say, was 60 people in my class. On paper, I plan on majoring in psychology, but I think I'm already thinking about going a different route. But hopefully I find something that will help me figure out how I can help others that require me to handle needles. All right. So you want to help people as long as you don't have to deal with sticking anybody with a needle. Yes. (laughs) Logan? I was uh, born in Peoria, Illinois, and I grew up uh, in Hopedale. It's about 40 minutes south of Peoria, small town. I went to uh, Olympia High School, graduating class of about, uh, I'd say, 130-ish, so not too big, but big enough for a country school. I currently don't really have a planned major. I've kind of just been poking around. Right now, I kind of have my foot in the door for uh, IT. I don't know if I'll stick with it. I think I'm a bit more passionate about uh, firefighting, and I've also looked at SWAT and the police force. Okay. So yeah, that's kind of just why I want to do this class, get out of the way as a prereq if I didn't go into law enforcement. And for a career goal, no matter my career, uh, right now I'm involved in my church and I want to go into a career where I can stay involved in my church, keep going on mission trips, uh, that sort of thing. Wonderful. All right. 
Segment two. Segment two is to inform the American public of their constitutional rights. Before we ask you to tell us what your favorite constitutional right is and why, let's remind the audience that the title of today's episode is Fleeing Felon Doctrine. So let's begin with this. In your own words, Alexis, can you define fleeing felon doctrine for us? Yes, it is a law slash rule where police have the okay to use lethal force and bodily injury to prevent a person of interest from escaping custody. And Logan, in your own words, can you do the same? I had that the the fleeing felon doctrine stated that police could use lethal force in order to prevent a felon from getting away in uh, the name of preventing further damage or injury from said felon. All right. We have been exploring this semester the term of discretion as it relates to the criminal justice system, just to remind our audience. So beginning with you, Logan, can you tell me in your own way how discretion might come into play when it comes to the fleeing felon? Uh, I kind of took the route of thinking about the other factors that would play into this. You know, cops, they have to make decisions based on what they're given. So this can be impacted by the weather, the lighting from the time of day, the civilians, the number of criminals. You know, there's a lot of different factors here. So discretion can kind of come in whenever they just have to make a decision quick on their feet. And, you know, it may not be the right one. It may be the right one, but just kind of whatever they think is best in the moment. And sometimes thinking is just not very clear with all the adrenaline. Wonderful. And we're going to give some specifics as to how all that comes into play. But before we do, Alexis, can you give us in your own way how you think that discretion comes into play when it comes to the fleeing felon doctrine? I believe that it is a major role into play for that, uh, whether that be good or bad, because it is a lot of thinking and, you know, there's so much going on and last minute decisions. And some people, you know, some people are corrupt and they're just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to just shoot at anything I see. Others, you know, they're more careful. Okay, okay, (laughs) All right. Very good. Let me add a little bit of definition to what you guys are saying for you and the audience also to see if you can actually find yourself in this. All right. Fleeing felon doctrine or rule instructs courts and law enforcement personnel about whether and when police may use deadly force to stop a suspect who is attempting to escape arrest. Exactly what you guys just finished saying, okay? There are two primary cases that regulate when deadly force can actually be used. The first case is Tennessee versus Garner, and the second case is Graham versus Connor. In its decision, the court held that apprehension by the use of deadly force is a seizure. So, first of all, if it's a seizure, what amendment does it fall up under? That'd be the fourth. Absolutely. Wonderful. Because you're actually taking somebody into custody or you're attempting to take somebody into custody. So, deadly force is a seizure subject to the reasonableness requirement of the Fourth Amendment, and that its use to prevent the escape of all felony suspects was found to be constitutionally impermissible. In other words, you can't use deadly force against all suspects just because they're running away. Does that make sense? 
In other words, that and, and this is what Tennessee versus Garner is saying. So the question then becomes, when is it constitutionally permissible and are impermissible? Well, Tennessee versus Garner, which is a 1985 case, said that if a person is escaping arrest but are not in imminent danger to life, then police cannot use deadly force as it is not permissible. And then Graham versus Connor, a 1989 case, kind of built on Tennessee versus Garner with what is called the reasonable test. And that means what would a reasonable officer, like both of you guys were saying, there's a lot of things that the officer has to think about. They have to actually consider matter of seconds as to what they're actually going to do. But the reasonable test that Connor, Graham versus Connor built on said that what would a reasonable officer do considering objective evidence? In other words, it can't be how you feel. It can't be what you just want to do, but it's got to be based on objective evidence. And the number one thing is, what do you think the number one thing is that they have to consider if they're going to use deadly force? Environment. Criminal has a weapon. Okay. Okay. Both of those are factors that certainly might impact their thinking. Who's around? What's going on? If the offender has a weapon, certainly. But number one thing is the severity of the crime that that individual has committed. In other words, if somebody is just like intoxicated on the side of the road and they really don't really even know what they're doing and they take off running, why are you going to shoot that individual? The, the crime that they committed is being pulled over for being drunk, right? So number one is severity of a crime. Number two is imminent threat to life. In other words, is that individual, just because they're running, that don't mean that they're actually going to go and hurt somebody else. And then number three, evading arrest by fleeing. So we know that they are actually doing that if they take off running, right? And then number four, actively resisting arrest. So they're resisting arrest. But I would submit that the main two things here are the severity of the crime and imminent threat to life. But even discretion can come into play in that. But there are, based on those two cases, objective things that an officer must consider. Cases that reference Graham, versus Connor are Michael Brown. You guys might not be familiar with these cases. Jonathan Farrell, John Crawford III, Keith Scott, Terrence Crutcher, Alton Sterling, Philandro Castro, Jamar Clark, Samuel Du Bois. And I'm sure you guys probably are familiar with George Floyd. In the George Floyd case, both the prosecution and the defense uh, made reference to the reasonable test. All right. I know that was a lot. So now, though, what I want you guys to tell the audience is what is your favorite constitutional right? Beginning with you, Logan. Uh, so I got the stereotypical country, uh, one of the Second Amendment right to bear arms. Uh, out here on the farm, we have a lot of coyotes around here, a lot of raccoons. Uh, we have chickens and goats and a few beehives. So we sometimes got to defend our livestock. So I think that's why that's my favorite amendment. Wonderful. OK, yeah. I'll never forget. This is Black History Month, right? And Mr. Bingham is a black man, right? There was, there was a period in time in our history when black folks were being lynched. You know, it's something that we never want to actually have to experience again, right? Yeah. But in my readings, there was a woman by the name of Ida B. Wells who was a historian, sociologist. She was a journalist. She was a teacher. And she actually chronicalized the period of lynching. And one of the things that she said, Logan, Ida B. Wells, 
Not Mr. Beagle. Ida B. Wells said every at that particular time in history, every black person needed to have a Winchester at the front of their house behind the door. You know what I'm saying? So Mr. Beagle is definitely not against having guns, even though I have never had one myself. All right. Very good. OK, Alexis. Um, From the choices we had to pick, I chose Amendment 5 mainly because... It protects us from self-incrimination. And, you know, saying nothing at all is better than saying everything, you know, I guess. Um, And then it's not as much pressure like giving into uh, a testimony. Okay. All right. Very good. So in other words, if you have the right to remain silent and you are being interrogated, do you want to actually run off at the mouth? Or do you want to say, I want to exercise my Fifth Amendment right, and I am reserving the right to incriminate myself. You don't have to testify in a court hearing if you don't want to, right? You have the right to, but you don't have to. You can remain silent. You don't have to say anything. Is there anyone or should anyone be above the law? Uh, Should anybody be above the law? No. Do people think they should be above the law? Yes, I believe so. I believe people with money and power are more obligated to feel they are above the law. I don't know. I watch a lot of documentaries and stuff. So I wrote a few examples here, like uh, like Pablo Escobar and Jeffrey Epstein. (laughs) Okay, then. Exclamation point. Yes. (laughs) Okay, Logan. No, I definitely don't think that. And to be honest, I think the fact that like this is such a big question in our society is just like it's ludicrous. It kind of blows my mind. Like we all know that if it's a law that's set there for a reason, yeah, we can challenge the laws. But for the most part, like, you know, not scamming people out of the money, that's pretty straightforward as to why we don't do it. Um, But I also know that human nature is to do what benefits yourself the most. And uh, so, of course, whenever someone gets does something, they get rich off of it they're going to try and buy their way out of it and keep doing this. And like, of course, that's not fair because they have that money. So they have that option to buy their way out of it. Whereas, you know, the average Joe, we can't just buy our way out of whatever we do. Okay. All right. Segment three, being a voice for change. And as emerging adults who grew up in a predominantly white America, what say Alexis and Logan about white supremacy and Black Lives Matter? Beginning with you, Alexis. I highly believe that white supremacy isn't a thing. Obviously, it is a thing. But, you know, some people are in denial about it. Like, oh, that's not a thing. Of course, that would be most white people who are like, oh, yeah, I don't have white privilege. Um, But I think it's totally unfair. And especially since our nation is very diverse, Uh, I think people need to just be a little bit more open minded, I guess, uh, both racially and ethnically. I do support Black Lives Matter. Organization is great and it's great to um, prevent such corruption that has been going on in our society. We all bleed red. Absolutely. All right, Logan. I have a slightly controversial view on this. So I believe that white supremacy does exist. 
Um, and to an extent, white privilege does. But I also believe that most of the white supremacy that does exist is from previous generations. And as like my generation and the ones coming about are going into adulthood, uh, that that difference is quickly diminished, uh, dwindling. Uh, one thing that I would actually kind of like to connect, I'm in a business class right now. And uh, I don't know how into business you are, but there are actually several different financial aids through the government specifically for minority groups to try and help uh, create, I guess, equality within that realm of uh, financing. But then alternatively to that, one thing that I'd also like to point out is the ethnic quotas that have started to be implemented actually strongly against these, not because I don't believe that there should be equal opportunity, but because I think these actually hurt people or hurt um, that concept of equal opportunity more than help. Like uh, there is one case with uh, some Asian students down in Harvard. They were turned away simply because they were uh, of Asian ethnicity, whereas they were scoring higher than a lot of other people. But because that quota was filled, they weren't allowed in. So they actually filed a lawsuit against the School of Law, uh, Harvard itself. And I remember reading into that. I found it uh, was pretty interesting. And as for the Black Lives Matter movement, I like the concept of it and I do support it. However, I think that the recent uh, events that unfolded from it could have been executed uh, much better. Um, a lot of like the riots and the vandalizing and the arson. I get that some people were just to the point of being fed up and wanting to, you know, get it out there, like finally get people to start paying attention. But I, again, don't think that was the right way to go about it, especially when they started attacking um, Black-owned businesses and property. But uh, like Martin Luther King Jr., I think he was a brilliant, inspiring man for white and Black people alike. And uh, I'm all for having equal opportunities, no matter what your race is. So I'd like to follow the more of All Lives Matter a bit more than Black Lives Matter. I think that whether you're Black, Asian, Indian, whether you're in the military, firefighter, policing, All Lives Matter. Wonderful. That's, that's all wonderful. Just to balance it out, Logan, this is Black History Month, right? Yeah. And I'm your professor. And I'm also yep. need to bring some balance. Are you familiar with, you may not be familiar with the fact that African-Americans were enslaved and they actually provided free labor way long ago. Then we go from slavery to Jim Crow. Jim Crow was in lasted all the way into the 20th century to the 50s and 60s, like you point out, Dr. King, where after slavery, African-Americans were locked up in prison just for eyeballing people the wrong way and put in prison. And after the Emancipation Proclamation in 1865, we see the prison system explode from like 5% African-American to like 75% African-American. And you probably remember from chapter one, those Jim Crow laws where things were separated. And so African-Americans have, in a sense, been left behind and it still affects African-Americans to this day. That's the whole reason why we have movements like what happened in the 60s with Dr. King and what happened with Black Lives Matter. And so you are exactly right. All lives do matter. And when we say that Black lives do matter, we're not actually saying that nobody else's life matter, right? We are. We're yep. not saying that, are we? And so you're exactly right. We have to keep in mind that there's still three percenters. There's still the Proud Boys. There's still other 
white supremacist groups that are really out there that, as a matter of fact, are really not only causing havoc against African-Americans, but against the Jewish community and against other minority groups. And it really isn't really doing us any favors by somebody discriminating against one group or the other. And when you think about, I'm familiar with that case that you're talking about, Asian people have suffered as well. Because if you go back to World War II, where Pearl Harbor was bombed, am I right about that? Yeah, and, with the, uh, I think it was the Japanese, but with oh, the Japanese, camps. yeah, Japanese, yeah. And so you you do have Asian people who have actually suffered as a result of that. But I just wanted to like bring a little balance to what you're saying. But it is a good opportunity to actually discuss things. Yeah, right. no, I'm all for seeing both sides of the both sides of the argument. Okay, very good. All right, so. I asked everybody that is on the show if there was one thing that you would like to see the Biden administration accomplish, what would that one thing be? Beginning with you, Alexis. I would like to see changes of inflation personally. Okay. And I know it hasn't been as bad, like increase wise, like with prices, it's kind of been just meh. It's just so hard to survive anymore, you know? We're college students. We got rent. We're still expected to have jobs and I can barely afford to eat, you know? (laughs) Wonderful. Okay, Logan. Um, Mine was the biggest thing, lowering taxes, kind of building off of that uh, specifically. And this is going to come across as a little harsh, but I want to remind you, I grew up on the farm. So I grew up on hard work, right? Uh, The biggest thing that I have a problem with is the welfare abuse going on. Uh, I believe that there's several things that could just be done to kind of fix up the welfare, make it a bit more fair um, and make it a bit more helpful rather than just a lifeline people. Okay. All right. Any thoughts on free community cop? I think that it would be a great idea. And I know that some other countries have achieved this, but I also know that nothing in this world's really free. So if community college were to be free, we'd pay for it in some other manner, such as by raising taxes or just some other way it would have to be paid for. It's it wouldn't just simply become free. So I'm kind of I'm kind of tossed up with this one. I would love for it to be free, but realistically, I know that it probably won't be for a good while. Okay, all right, Alexis, your thought? I would have to agree with Logan. It would be nice for it to be free, but I feel like the quality of um, the students, you know, the the graduates would kind of decline in a way. Uh, you know, because if everyone has college for free, then everyone's going to apply. And I feel like not necessarily everyone deserves to be in college. Like it's something that you have to work really hard for. And if it's just given to you, then, like I said, the quality, I feel like would just go down. Another thing, like he said, nothing in this world is free. You're going to have to pay for it some form some way. Okay. All right. Very good. Let me just balance it out a little bit. People have listened to my podcast and they have said, you believe in free community college? And if that was the case, everybody would partake. No, they won't. Everybody ain't going to partake because college ain't for everybody. They're going to take that one class and they're going to drop it. But for those individuals realizing that education is the key to one big key to success, if I can't afford Mr. Bingham, for example, I can remember like it was yesterday. In undergrad, I paid $995 a semester to get my undergraduate degree. That was years ago, right? I wish. (laughs) 
<laughs> but as you can see, it helped me to be successful. And not only that, I was able to go on to get a master's degree. But I came from a family where my mother, she birthed me at the age of 15. And so she worked really hard. She ended up running Head Start and working for Head Start for 40 years, but she didn't make a lot of money. And my stepfather actually worked for the street department for like 40 years. And so they were hard workers, but it was 10 of us and we, they didn't have a lot of money. And so I needed assistance. That's what I mean by, you know, that's one of the main reasons why I asked this question. So just keep that in mind. Let's, let's conclude on this one. Marijuana is legal in the state of Illinois. Do you, th <laughs> do you think that marijuana should be legalized at the federal level? I'm going to be honest on this one. Okay. I don't really feel like one way or another. So uh, my last job that I had was a moving job. And most of the guys there would get uh, high a lot. I didn't have a problem with it. The only time that I have a problem, well, there are two times I have problems with it. If you're doing it in a manner where other people who don't want to be affiliated with it will end up smoking or receiving the benefits of it, I guess you could say. Or the second part, if you are getting high and then like with alcohol, right? You can't drink alcohol and operate machinery or go to work. So if it becomes legal, I'm fine with that. I just think it should be held to the same or similar expectations to where if you don't want to do it, you don't have to be affiliated with it. Okay. Alexis? I believe it should be legalized federally, personally, because I mean, it kind of has the Oh, same, we got some diversity in the house. The same effects as alcohol, if not worse. And you know, there's I, I know you can't believe everything you read like on the Internet, but it's like kind of proven to be a little healthier than, you know, like just your typical alcoholic. Like it's a little bit more relaxing, I guess. I don't know. Um, but I feel like it should be treated as alcohol if it were to be legalized, kind of like what Logan said. And in a way, it would bring more cash into into the federal uh, department. So. I feel like it's a win-win for everybody. All right. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. The fleeing felon doctrine, Tennessee versus Garner, Graham versus Connor, the reasonable test, when deadly force is permissible, important constitutional rights, and how to make America a better place to live. Until next time, keep living your best life. God bless and Godspeed. Mm -hmm.